The epistle is from Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me just say out loud something that I think often, and that is you are fantastic singers. Thank you very much for singing, and always sing boldly. Sing boldly, that's my strategy. Sing boldly, and it will help everyone around you. Thank you very much for that. This morning, uh, this is a sermon about choosing a spouse, a sermon about choosing a spouse. Every year, the lectionary affords me one opportunity, really, to preach about marriage, and this is it. You heard in Ephesians 5 about the relationship between husbands and wives, and God cares how we think about marriage. He cares quite a bit. In fact, he cares so much that he tells us marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church, the most important picture we could have in mind. And so it matters how we think about choosing a spouse. It matters for future generations. Just notice how things have changed over time. So I was kind of picturing in my head the way conversations have gone over the decades, for instance. Suppose you've got a nice young man, a Lutheran boy who wants to get married, and you might look for a nice young Lutheran girl for him to marry. Makes sense. But then as time goes on and as things change and as our world changes, you might settle and say something to the effect of, well, I know she's not a Lutheran girl, but at least at least she's a Christian. And then as time goes on a little bit longer, you might say, well, I know she's not a Christian, but at least she's a really nice girl. And now you find yourself in a spot today where you might even say, I know that she's not a nice girl, but at least she's a girl. <laughs> I was not expecting to get a laugh for that. <laughs> And then you might say, well, at least they're getting married. Or you might say, well, at least they're committed to each other. You see how things have gone over time, how our standards have grown weaker and weaker. I was talking with some pastors this week at a meeting. We have monthly meetings with the circuit pastors, and we were all talking this week about this very concept, this notion, because this lesson comes up today. And we all noted all together that we have been neglectful. In talking about this subject, our standards have become wishy-washy, and from the pulpit we have grown wishy-washy. Somewhere along the way, we lost our mooring, and we owe it to Christians everywhere, pastors do, to speak clearly on this subject. Now, the tricky thing is that once you have neglected a subject, it becomes very hard to bring it back. 
So let me say this about bringing back a subject, like choosing a spouse. The grace is not in overlooking the topic. The grace is not in avoiding the topic. The grace is in this, that Jesus forgives sins, that he sets wrongs right, that he takes us not where he expects us to be or wants us to be, but he takes us where we are and redeems us and forgives us and gives us new life. The grace is in having the truth set you free, the truth and not a lie, not a cover-up, not softened edges, but that sharp two-edged sword. That truth is what sets us free. And so that is what I'm going to undertake to do today. I'm going to try to speak clearly about this subject. Here's the long and the short of it. You should marry someone who reads the Bible with you, prays with you, worships with you, and takes communion with you. You should marry someone who reads the Bible with you, prays with you, worships with you, and takes communion with you. In our conversation this week at the meeting with the other pastors, a couple of the fellows said it in a couple of very good ways. One of them said, you would like to eat supper with your spouse, wouldn't you? Kind of strange to have a life where you don't eat dinner together. How much stranger still not to have the Lord's Supper together? Or another fellow put it this way. He said, We would say that we would live and die for our faith. We would die for our faith. Well, we should give up everything else, too, in terms of marriage for our faith. If you say that you'd die for Jesus, you should also marry for him as well. Marriage is fundamental to our lives as Christians. Jesus is the most important thing. He's the most important in every aspect of our lives, not least of all, in fact, perhaps most of all, in terms of marriage. And faith in Jesus always comes first. It will not settle for a second place. The commandment goes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. With every corner of your life, it is by faith and faith alone that we receive all of the blessings of heaven, that we receive the inheritance promised to us as children of God. It is faith alone and the gifts that we receive from Jesus for which it is worth losing the world and everything else that we might gain in this world. It is for faith. It is for the promises of Jesus that we ought to be willing to give up all the treasures of this life. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you should love him with your marriage as well. I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about why that matters so much. It matters for your own sake as well as for the sake of future generations. But first, you should know something about how the devil works. I was reflecting on this this week. The devil is a subtle fellow. He is not simple. He's not stupid. He is a fool for thinking that he can defeat God Almighty. But he's not a fool in the sense that he's not crafty or wily. He is more clever than you and I are. And that is why I think, this is speculation, but that is why I think he doesn't spend very much time convincing people to be psychopaths. There really aren't that many psychopaths in our world, just out-and-out people who love doing evil things and relish doing evil things and are known by everyone around as doing evil things. There are some of those, and I think the devil uses them to frighten us, to make us despair, to make us feel righteous. Well, at least I'm not like that psychopath over there. But most of the time, the devil doesn't work in that way. It's too obvious. The devil is a subtle 
fellow. It's too obvious. Everyone knows that if you go around murdering people all the time, you are wicked. That's an easy play, but it's also too obvious. If all the devil ever did was get people to murder all the time, nobody would be on his side, because that's awful. Why would anybody want that? And so instead, the devil works in a more subtle way. He tries to convince people to be ordinary, decent, upstanding citizens who appreciate all of God's good gifts, who are grateful for everything that God gives them so long as they get to have them on their own terms. He tries to convince people that, yes, it is good to love the cart and the horse, but it is far better to put the cart before the horse. He tries to convince people that the wine at the wedding feast is fantastic, and you should have the good wine now. Save the swill for later when you've had too much to drink already. He tries to get people to put things out of order, to take all of the good things that God gives us and say, yes, Lord, I see what you've given me there and how good it is, but I'd like to just rearrange a few parts here. I've got some ideas about how this could be improved. I'd like all of those fixings on that burger, but I'd like to have it my way. You didn't laugh at that joke. (laughs) I'd like to have it my way. That's what the devil wants, is for us to think all these good things that God gives us are better if I have them my way. Not to throw out God's order altogether, not to throw out God's gifts and relish terrible, wicked, despicable things, but to take God's good gifts and just just to tweak it a little bit, to say in my heart, I think I know better than God. Not outright rebellion. Look, I'm not rebelling against God. I'm just just trying to improve his plan a little bit. You see how the devil works. Who would blame you for that? Aren't we progressive? Don't we want to do better and better? And can't we, with all of our knowledge, all of our wisdom, all of our tolerance, all of our experience, all of our planning and scheming and hopes for the future, can't we do just a little bit better than God? Don't you think? That's what the devil convinces people to say. And everybody nods along in agreement because, look, they're not wicked, not evil, they're not murdering anybody. What can be the harm? For instance, take the glory of sex, this great gift that God gives to his people, a marvelous thing that is a sign of intimacy between a husband and a wife and bears fruit in abundance. What a great thing that God gives to his people, to the world, and people take it, and they turn it all upside down, and they have it out of order. They insist on enjoying now what God has promised for later. They demand right at once what God has said not yet to. You see how easy that is to do. And then if you were to say a word about that, you would be considered a prude. What are you saying, that sex is a bad thing, that sex is evil? No, in fact, not. Instead, it is good according to God's promises, the way God designed it. Not according to the way that I might think it might be useful, according to God's good order. Or take the roles assigned to men and women. This one is especially pernicious in our day. Nowadays, men and women are thought to be just a combination of parts that you can kind of rearrange at will. You can see that in its extreme, with the kinds of things that are done even to young people nowadays, it's atrocious. But this goes back even a few steps further. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 about the head and the body. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Why can't they swap places? 
Why does it have to be that the man is the head and the wife the body? But notice this. Paul does not say husbands should be the head of their wife. He says husbands are the head. It's just a question of whether or not they will be a good head or a bad head, whether that head will lead in the right direction or the wrong direction. What happens if you try to flip-flop things? If a head pretends to be a shoulder or if a shoulder pretends to be a head? What happens if you try to walk on your head or lead with your nose? What happens if you are going the wrong way? What happens if the head is not the one leading? Everything gets put all out of whack. And that is why it is essential that we marry according to God's word. And we think about God's order and we put his order front and center in our minds. This is why who you choose as a spouse matters. For a long, long time now, the devil has been working to convince us that the most important thing in marriage is that storm of emotions, which people call being in love. And don't get me wrong, being in love is important. And the storm of emotions is a gift of God. It matters tremendously, but it is only good in its proper place. So the devil would convince us that being in love, experiencing that storm of emotions, that that is the one truly non-negotiable thing. Maybe you remember in former days when parents would really desire that their kids marry Somebody who's going to be successful and like, oh, I really hope that you will marry a doctor or a lawyer, and then you can take care of me in my old age. They would say things like that. Well, anymore, parents are supposed to say this. I really hope that you marry someone who you're truly in love with. I really hope that you marry someone who you feel very close to. I really hope you marry someone who makes you feel good, and you make them feel good. That is what is put first, according to the devil, That is what is most important, the non-negotiable. But see how all out of order that is. That's a gift that God gives. That being in love, that storm of emotion, that is a gift that comes from God. But where does that fit in the sequence of events? It is one of the things that comes after. It is one of the things that comes later and better and better all the time. That is the hope, isn't it? If the starting place is the storm of emotions, what happens to emotions. They fade, the storm loses its force, the being in love kind of weakens. And if everything hinges on that, on those feelings, you are resting on a shaky foundation. It's not the way God designed it to be. And so instead, God says, put these things first. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you as well. And that is why you should marry someone who shares your faith, the first and most important thing, the thing without which everything else will fall apart, the thing without which nothing else matters. It is your faith that gives you the gifts of Christ, and it is your faith that shows you the light and goodness of God's kingdom. It is your faith that you should want most of all to share with the one with whom you spend your life Not just in word, this is important. Not just in what you say, but also what you do. And that is why I say you should marry someone with whom you pray, with whom you read the Bible, with whom you go to church, and with whom you share communion. Because faith is not something that resides just inside your heart, but shows itself outside in your actions. 
in what you put first in your life, in what you do, in what you treasure, in what you consider non-negotiable. Being a Christian is really hard, and if you've never thought that, then perhaps you've not tried to be a Christian. Being a Christian is really hard because the devil is always after you. He does not care about people who are not Christians. He's already got them. He doesn't have to do any work on them. But for Christians, St. Peter tells us, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour them. He has lost them and he wants them back and he will not stop at anything to tempt and deceive even the most sincere and faithful Christians. And that is why Paul can say such astonishing things as work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Learn from the lessons of the Old Testament, lest you desire evil the way they did. Hold fast to God's word, lest you abandon the hope that was given to you and drive out the Holy Spirit who resides in your heart. The Bible is full of warnings because living the life of a Christian is difficult and dangerous. It is not hopeless. You have been given everything that you need to stay in the faith by God's promises. St. Paul tells you that for every temptation, God also provides the way of escape. You have been given God's word and abundance. You've been given the consolation of the Holy Spirit, the promises of the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. You've been given the love of God beyond measure, always more and more, And if we hold fast to those promises and do not cling to the things the devil puts on offer in front of us, we have nothing to fear, but you must be on guard. And that is why we are given in marriage an incredible gift. Because in marriage you are given the opportunity to attach yourself to someone who will strengthen and encourage you in the faith. With promises and oaths, till death us do part. Promises and oaths of faithfulness And love, the head leading the body in a life of faith and devotion to God. The body following the head to a life of faith and devotion to God. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that a cord that is made of three strands is not easily broken. A single strand all by itself, or two strands that aren't wound together, much less wound together along with a third, they will be easily broken. But in marriage, a cord of three strands is formed, a husband, a wife, and their Savior, Jesus Christ. And that cord cannot be broken. When everything rests on Jesus and what he has done for you, everything is given to you. All these things will be added to you. Not just strengthening in faith and growth in love, but joy and blessing and happiness even in this life. Those are the things that God wants to give in marriage. And beyond that, he shows to all the world what a picture of love looks like. What a picture of forgiveness and mercy and grace look like. Who, after all, can forgive except a Christian? Who, after all, can overlook faults and hand things over to the mercy of God? Who can do that but one who trusts in God above all things? And so in a Christian marriage, forgiveness is put on full display, front and center, and that is a light shining into this dark world. It is something that is needed desperately in this world, not least of all for the future generations in the church. And so we ought to always show that picture 
to everyone around us. We ought to acclaim it all the time. We ought to sing its praises. Let us live lives that are given entirely to this purpose of showing our neighbors, our friends, and our family how glorious and gracious our God and Savior is. That begins really in marriage, where Christ gives us someone to love and cherish the way that he has loved and cherished us, where Christ gives us someone to trust the way that we are instructed to trust in him. It's an amazing thing. It is far too great for us. St. Paul calls it a mystery that is profound. This is far too great for us to comprehend. And so we have to commend it all to God's care. Wherever you are, whatever is in your past, whatever you have done or thought about marriage, let this rejoice your hearts now. That Christ wants to give us only good things. That his word sets us free. That forgiveness and mercy abound in the blood of our Savior. And that the kingdom of God is yours. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen. Amen.